Hi everybody, I'm Elena Aguilar and welcome to the Bright Morning Podcast. So sometime within the next two weeks, my next book will be arriving in the mail. It will be born. This is book number five. I can't believe I've written five books and this book is called Coaching for Equity. So in honor of that book, today's episode is actually an interview with me. My teammate Lori interviewed me about my process, my experience writing this book. I'm excited to share this with you. It feels, I don't know, I feel nervous about this one. Um, I just feel kind of shy, but I'm so excited to share this with you. And I also want to say, if you have aspirations to be a published author or to write, um, I want to support you. I have a new offering that I am doing to support folks who want to develop their writing voice, their writing skills, and to be to be published. So in the show notes, you'll see a link to that resource. All right, let's get this episode started. All right, well, it feels weird to welcome you, Lori Cohen, to the Bright Morning Podcast, <laughs> but that is what I am doing this week. So welcome, Lori Cohen, who is my teammate in Bright Morning and who is a senior associate and presents our workshops and coaches and consults. And this week, for this episode, I have invited Lori to interview me about my forthcoming book, Coaching for Equity, because I want to to share what it's about with you. I want to share some of the behind the scenes, some of the things that I haven't written about or shared anywhere in terms of the experience of writing this book. And I invited Lori because Lori loves books and she's actually read this book. And I always enjoy talking with Lori about books. And she's also really good at asking questions. So. Welcome, Lori. Thank you, Elena. I'm honored to be here and to interview you today. Where are we going to start? Uh, well, I I have a lot of questions, as I usually do. And so um, I think let's start when you decided to write the book, which was last June. And when you decided to write the book, you wrote in your notebook, I can call on the spirit of this book. And we can have a conversation about the book. We can make some agreements about how we work together. So I'm curious about what those agreements were and how did the book treat you? Hmm. So I think the backstory to that is that I felt for many years like I should write this book. And every time I had that thought, it was more of like, oh, I should write this book. It's really needed. I write about equity in my other books, but it's woven in. And I, for a long time, felt like I should just be really explicit 
I also, for many years in work that I had done, felt like I wish I could just open up a book somewhere and there would be a clear, concise definition of racism and white supremacy and what that means in schools. And I couldn't find, I found only big books or things that were way too theoretical. I needed something that was like four or five pages that I could share with a client or share with a team of teachers or something. And and so I kept feeling like someone needs to write this book. And I kept, I felt like I kept kind of waiting, hoping that someone would write this book about how to have conversations with teachers about equity issues and about racial equity. And I tried to convince a few people that I know that they should write it with me and that didn't really go anywhere. And so this, maybe like the spirit of this book or the idea of this book had been lurking around me for years. And I kept saying, you know, can't you go find somebody else? And then it just kept coming back. And so it was about a year ago that I decided, okay, I will, I will write this book. And at that point, I know what I wrote in my journal. I mean, I have the notes from my journal because it's the journal that I always use when I'm meeting with my coach. And we'd had this conversation about this book and this was, and she she had sort of planted this idea. She's like, you know, this book keeps lurking around you. Why don't you have a conversation with it? Make some agreements about how you're going to treat each other. And and so that was what I did. And so what I said to, you know, what I imagined saying to this book was, okay, I will I will write you. I'll sit down and 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 I'll create this but you have to be gentle with me. Like you got to treat me nicely because writing a book is hard and writing a book about equity and racial equity, that's, that's going to be trying in some moments. So you have to be a relatively easy book to write. Part of, I think part of the agreements that I made with myself were around my own expectations for this book. And I can have really high standards for myself and I can, I don't have a, I really don't have a perfectionist tendency, but I have a like, I can make it better. I can make it better. If I work on it just a little bit more, I can make it better. And with coaching for equity, I really said to myself, you know, I'm going to be, there's so much to say on this topic and I could probably write several books on it. And other people do need to write books on this topic as well. More books on what it means to build equitable schools. But I'm going to have to be okay with this book feeling done at some point and not feeling like I could make it better. If I could just have a little bit more time, if I just read one more book on this topic or that topic or that topic, it would be better. I had to really start practicing being kind with myself. Mm. So when you said having the book be gentle to you, so I remember a year ago when you started writing the book, and I think it was back in the fall when you started doing heavier writing, I noticed on your Instagram, you had posted a photo of two, are they called votive candles, patron saint candles? Um, mm-hmm. There are folks that you called upon and sort of brought into the space with you as you wrote the book. Um, 
Do you remember that photo that you posted or those candles? Obviously you probably remember those candles you have in your office, but um, mm-hmm. uh, would you be willing to talk a little bit about that and sort of the, your conditions for writing this book? Yeah. I've, I have AOC and Toni Morrison. Lori, one of the reasons why I'm, I'm sort of stumbling for a moment is I wrote this book in a much shorter and denser amount of time than any of my other books. So in the fall, I had about two months of really intensive writing time where I was just just like in my little space and I like to wake up really early. And so I'm, especially when I'm writing, I'm often in my writing space by five in the morning, five 30 at the latest. And then I kind of go into this, like just bubble space. And then there was another bubble space in, I guess it was February and March So there's been these little sort of pockets where I got completely immersed in the book. And it's almost like I have a hard time remembering Mm. that and what happened. And and many mornings I did light candles. So I have these two. They look like the Catholic votive candles that you find um, that honor the saints. And but one of them has um AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and the other one has Toni Morrison. And so I would light those and, and sort of call on the, call on the ancestors and call on the people who are doing the work now, the, the writers, the activists, the, the people who have gone before, the artists, the musicians to bring their strength and clarity to my project. So. It's a lonely thing writing a book and and I sometimes tell myself I'm not doing this alone whether that is like symbolically or some you know metaphysically I don't I'm just I'm not I'm doing it in the company of so many others who have gone before and who are working in the same field now mm-hmm. Yeah and speaking of that company you write a really powerful dedication to the beginning of this book. And I'd love for you to talk a little bit about that. And I'm assuming you have it in front of you also to read and share with us. I do. I pulled it up. Okay. So this is the dedication for Harriet, Medgar, Paulo Freire, Adelia Nazarias, Yochewit and Sivia, Luvinia and George Washington Goodwin, Bessie and Prentice Sr., Brenda, Rocio, Uber, and all my former students, Dennis, Sharon, and Hannah, Jeff, Larry, and Louie, and for Gilbert, my father, Linda, my mother, Stacy, my heart, and Orion, my life. So, when I think about the dedication of a book, 
it's for me the it is the sort of who am I doing this for and who do I want to honor? Who do I want to remember? And coaching for equity more than any other book feels like one that has been inspired by and, and fed by so many people. It feels like it's an offering, such a minuscule offering, but it's a humble offering for the efforts and labor and strength and resilience of so many of my ancestors, of my son's ancestors, of of what I who the people I would think about as my courage ancestors, my ideological ancestors. And so the first person listed is Harriet. And that that is Harriet Tubman who who has played such a critical role in my life. It's hard for me to even describe it or talk about the impact that she's had and the way that my learning about her has influenced my life. She is my number one role model and guide. And then Medgar is Medgar Evers, the civil rights leader who was killed by white supremacists. And I wanted to, to acknowledge the leader's who who have fought against racial injustice. And I was about 13 when I learned about Medgar Evers and somehow his story really affected me also as perhaps one of the maybe lesser known civil rights leaders, lesser known than Martin Luther King, of course. Um, so without going through every person on this list, many of the, uh, some of the others are, uh, are known or are identified. I have my paternal grandparents in there, my some great grandparents, my son's ancestors, Luvinia, George Washington Goodwin, who was my son's great great grandfather. No, great 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 grandfather, George Washington Goodwin. And he was born enslaved in Mississippi. And he died a freed man. And his son changed his name to Goodman, changed it from Goodwin, which was the enslaver's name, to Goodman. And that's my son's name, my husband's and my son's last name. And so I wanted to honor their ancestry. Luvinia was also an ancestor of my son's, and but ancestors are are really important to me and i i feel their presence i sense them and i feel so much gratitude every day for what they did and for the choices that they made that allow me to be here allow my husband and son to be here and so i wanted to honor them i wanted to acknowledge my students who taught me so much and, and some of the key people in my little family who have made me who I am. And so that's that, uh, that list. It just felt really important 
for me to open this book with a, a lengthy acknowledgement of who has nourished me and who this book is for. When I read the book, I noticed in this particular book, how much your son figures into the lenses that you brought to some of your coaching and, and how much you call him to mind in the book. How aware is Orion of like the role that he plays in what you write and in this book in particular? That is a tricky question. So Orion, my son, is 16. And I am very conscious, very thoughtful and mindful about how much I write about him and where I write about him and what I say. I would say that the stories about him in this book or the way that he influences my thinking in in real life is about 15 times as much as that I as I put into the book but I am I'm careful about what I share I want to be careful about how I define his experience and and it's complex and it's it's just way too complex to kind of squeeze into a book I realize my identity markers and I write about this in the introduction really the importance of them or the ones that are most salient really shifted when I had him. And then when he started going to school, being a mother and being the mother of a black boy became a primary lens, really shifted the way that I show up in this work. It's part of what made writing this book hard this book, you know, this book, the spirit of the book was really kind to me, but the book also made me have to think so deeply about racism and white supremacy in schools every day for eight months or something, just every day, never turning it off, right? It's like, I finish work and then you just, you don't escape it in this country. You don't escape it in many parts of the world, but every day thinking about it. And then you go, you know, and you try to watch your Netflix flicks show and you're like, oh, there's another representation of black people in this way. I don't want, you know, and it's like, you just never get away with from it. So, you know, I can't blame the book for having to make me confront racism every day for months and months and months. And, you know, I'm 50 years old. I found ways to navigate all this shit that we have to deal with, but my baby is still making his way into the world. And so it's really confronting my maternal fears. Will he be okay? Is he okay? How do I help him process what's already happened? What does he understand? What is he? And he's 16. When I try to talk with him about things going on, he's like, not often wanting to talk because he's 16 and I'm his mom. Yeah. Mm. When I read the introduction of this book, I felt sort of anchored in the multiple lenses you brought to the work. And I think the thing that I notice a lot about reading this book, and I think what educators will notice, and, and this was true too of Onward, um, about cultivating emotional resilience is is the vulnerability you bring to the stories you tell. 
and how human the stories are in this book. And I think about how much, you know, is sort of anchored in stories in this book. But one, I just want to share an appreciation for the vulnerability that you bring as a mother, as an educator, and in through so many lenses of your identity. I also am curious to learn about, is there a favorite part you have of this book that you wrote or a part that you most enjoyed writing? Hmm. There is. So there are a number of sections where I'm telling a story and there's actually two, I would say, really long stories about um, each one about a different person that I coached and about the journey of coaching them and coaching them around equity. And I loved writing both of those because they're sort of a narrative nonfiction, but I really got to write in a way that I love to write. And there's one story that actually spans four chapters about coaching relationship that I had with a man named Kai. And I worked with him for two years and it was a super intense coaching experience. And I wrote those chapters actually first because I wanted to, when I started writing the book, I wrote the introduction, but then I wanted to jump into a section that I knew I'd have a lot of energy for. And I just started writing that story. And it was so cathartic to write. And it also forced me to go back through lots of coaching journals because I have stacks of coaching journals. And this was a coaching relationship that happened about 10 years ago. And so I had to go back and read all those journals. And that was, that was really great. I could see how my coaching has grown and developed, but I could also, in looking back at these notes, I was like, I was a good coach. And that, for some reason, that was a relief. I had been worried that if I looked back on those notes, I think, oh, what was I saying? Why did I say that? You know, why did I do that? But when I looked back at them, I was like, no, this was good coaching. And that experience coaching him was so intense. And it was also one that I felt really good about. Like I felt like I was really effective coach and, and I had a lot of data points to indicate that. So that I loved writing that story and remembering that and remembering how we both grew in that coaching relationship. Do you keep all your coaching journals? Yeah. Really? Yes. Wow. Mm -hmm. How often do you go back and look at them? Not often. I, I, I mean, I do when I'm writing because that's where, that's how I remember what did I say? You know, what were the, what did the clients say? Um, and so I do when I'm writing, but otherwise, but it's wild. It's like I open them up and all of a sudden I'm in that classroom and I remember everything on the walls and I remember the temperature in the classroom. And I remember things like, you know, the clothing I was wearing at that point. It's just a, it brings it all back. Uh, well, and I, Kai's story is, is really poignant. And I think readers will find that they become as invested in his growth as you are as his coach, just because of how much that relationship is, is sort of 
one is front and center, but two shows so much of what you were doing, like in your mind, sort of what you were thinking and sort of how, how you were striving to work with him. It was a really, I mean, this, all the stories I think are really sort of powerful consequences of the tools and the frameworks that you include in this book. And while this book contains tools and frameworks for coaching for equity that absolutely are going to support educators in transforming schools, the stories themselves bring those frameworks to life. And I'm also curious because I know so much of this book is about storytelling and sort of these frameworks as they get manifested into practice. Is there a story that you didn't include in this book that you wish you would have? Or is there like an adjacent story if you were to write Coaching for Equity Part 2 that you might Um, that is an interesting question. One of the challenges in writing this book more than any other, but it's true in every book, is how to honor confidentiality. And I'm really committed to honoring confidentiality of the folks that I've coached. And so sometimes, you know, there have been some, some stories that I wish I could include, but I don't want to risk somebody recognizing themselves or exposing somebody. I just won't take that risk. But I think there's nothing that really jumps to mind that's like, oh, I wish I could have included that. You know, the other thing I think about is wanting to make sure I'm sharing stories because they will help people learn rather than because... I want to expose how awful people can be. So I don't want to include those either because mm-hmm. we have enough evidence of that. Yeah. I don't need more of that. <laughs> I see it all the yeah. time. So you've told me that you place great symbolic significance on the first and last word of your books. Um, and a handful of readers have noticed that the final word in the art of coaching teams is onward. So When I was finishing The Art of Coaching Teams, I knew that the next book that I wrote was going to be on cultivating resilience, and I had already named it Onward. I had actually already given my publisher the proposal, and so I knew that that was going to be the next book, and so I kind of snuck that. I kind of put that in there at the end of Art of Coaching Teams to see like how many people are going to notice. Tell us about the first and the last word in Coaching for Equity. So the first word in the introduction to Coaching for Equity is Jabari. And Jabari was the first student who I ever covertly followed around school to gain a deeper understanding of what the experience was like for in that case at that school, African-American students. And this was a project that the leadership team had given me the go-ahead to do. And the plan was, or what I did, was shadow a student for a day and record the interactions that he had with adults, How what adults said to him, what uh, what kinds of interactions he had and it was a an eye-opening experience 
for me as a person, as well as as a coach and as someone trying to raise issues of, of equity and inequity. But starting the book with a student's name felt as important as what is in the dedication. So you should know that Jabari is a pseudonym for the student from the school that I mentioned, but I, at a different school, taught several Jabaris, and I don't think they would be upset if they happen to read this book and see that I use their name for this other student. Um, because the, the student that I talk about in the opening of Coaching for Equity was a wonderful young man who did not get what he deserved in school. I wanted to begin the book by basically saying, we are talking about children in this book. That's the first word. And then the last word is all. So the last sentence is, well, the last two sentences, thank you for being with me on this journey. Now go forth and transform yourself, your schools, and your communities into places of liberty and justice for all. So I wanted to end with the last word being a reminder of everyone. In your last couple of sentences, when you write about transform, when you call upon your readers to transform themselves, that um, makes me wonder, well, one, you know, through your sharing of this journey, like this book has been a journey for you. And you started this conversation talking about, you know, at times it was really challenging. And you've described often how much this book has tested you in, in a lot of ways. And so now that the book is complete and it's about to be released, who are you now as a result of writing this book? Hmm. That's a good question. I would say the main reason I write books is because the process of writing a book is the most meaningful and rigorous learning experience that I can ever have for myself. I love writing because it's how I learn. It's when I stop and think and put things together in my mind and understand my own experiences as well as understand how to how to be more effective. And so I think now I feel more empowered. I feel clearer and stronger and more equipped to respond to racism and inequities. I feel I have a much deeper understanding of my own experience. I didn't realize how much I would realize or understand about my own experience as a student and as a person, how many insights I would get from writing this book about coaching. I feel also more hopeful, more optimistic, because writing some of the stories, like the story about Kai or the story about Stephanie, another one, made me remember people change, people can change, and they can change quickly, and they can change in ways that we would never imagine. I think sometimes now, 
we can feel overwhelmed by the amount of change that needs to happen and the amount of racism and the amount of unconscious biases. And my experience as a coach has been that it's not that hard to create the conditions and it's not that hard to acquire the skill sets to support people to reflect on who they are and who they want to be and to understand racism and white supremacy and to change. It's not that hard. We have a mental model that it's so hard. It's going to be a, a lifetime of unlearning. Yes. And all right. Yes. And I just don't, it's like, if we think it's going to be that hard and it's going to take a whole lifetime, then it will. It, it's not that people are going to like, you know, shed all the socialization that they've been going through for 20, 30, 40, 50 years. But I also know that people can make changes in their behaviors and in what they think and believe actually pretty quickly. And I've seen people change. And I also feel like, I really do feel like this book is going to be helpful. I really feel like it is going to equip people with what they need. For years, people have been asking me, saying things like, you know, well, what would you say if someone says this? And what do you say if someone says that? And that's what's in this book. But it's also what's in this book is also how do you respond to and engage with your own feelings that come up, your feelings of of your anger, your sadness, your frustration, your feeling of discomfort. And that's in that's in this book too. And so I feel I actually feel really hopeful and optimistic. Like, all right, this is this is a a contribution. There's a lot more to learn. There's a lot of practice. Yes, we still have to rid ourselves of all of the toxins that we've internalized of racism and white supremacy and other forms of bigotry. And we can make big changes tomorrow. Mm-hmm. There's so much. <laughs> there, I think when you talked about how people can change, there's this, you know, this too is sort of an offshoot of what you just shared. This culture that we're currently living in, you know, one is super polarized right now. And two, have you heard this phrase about cancel culture? Mm-hmm. But you know, this notion of cancel culture is essentially that people who have, you know, s- sort of committed some egregious wrongdoings or tropes that no longer serve us, that people become, you know, canceled as a result. And, you know, so one example of that is JK Rowling. And, you know, she made some comments on Twitter that were, you know, anti-transgender in nature. And then she wrote an even longer missive after the fact um, that continued to perpetuate her sort of beliefs in this gender binary and the transgender community and people who are supportive of the tra- of LGBTQ communities. A lot of folks have quote unquote canceled her. And insofar as, you know, won't read her books. There are people who are huge Harry Potter fans who have all kinds of Harry Potter paraphernalia all over the place. who have gotten rid of it. And so, you know, she is essentially canceled. And the reason that this is coming up for me in this conversation is you talking about, you know, the role of the coach, right, is to believe in people's capacity to change and grow. And I wonder how you I wonder about a lot of things, but, you know, a couple of things that come to mind for me are, you know, how, like, what do you make of a culture? And there are some people who just do terrible, horrible things who like, I'm completely fine with never seeing again, people who've gotten the spotlight, who hold markers, of the dominant culture. But what do you do about this 
um, about the ways that our society also promotes this cancel culture where it seems that the fundamental belief is that people can't change. And once they do something that is inequitable or is harmful, that they like they're irredeemable afterwards. I think that's an important point that you raise. There's two things that come to mind. One is that it would be interesting to explore those underlying beliefs that people are holding about people changing or what is what is inexcusable. My wondering and concern is that in order for us to create liberated spaces or communities, we need healing and justice. And we need to figure out how do we understand people who express things that we find completely inexcusable or offensive and what are the possibilities for reintegrating them? It's a question I hold and a question about restorative practices. And I think that we can learn a lot by looking at other places in the world that have had to contend with their histories. I think we could learn a lot from how Germany has dealt with their history. And we can learn a lot from how Rwanda has responded to the genocide that happened there 25 years ago from South Africa. You know, none of those processes are perfect. And those are places where there have been incredible grassroots restorative practices and organization to reintegrate people. and to understand that history, Mm -hmm. to respond to it. I just think that we, you know, we don't have much of a tolerance for ourselves making big mistakes in public, right? Like when we do that, we feel so many of us feel so much shame and want to recoil. And I think the process, if we could normalize the process of learning and growth and making huge mistakes and then coming back from that and and seeing people's growth you know when you see people getting canceled i'll tell you sometimes i look back at things that i wrote even in the art of coaching and i wish i had done things differently if, when i wrote onward i wanted to use the pronoun they rather than he or she, and I put that in onward, and then I was told I couldn't because of grammar. And I sort of shrugged my shoulders. And this time I insisted, and I included it in my contract with my publisher. I just said, I won't publish it if you don't let me use they. My first books were not gender inclusive. And I look back at that and I feel sad. And I feel a bit of embarrassment and regret. So sometimes I worry, I worry, for example, that I'll look back at coaching for equity in five years or 10 years and I'll feel like, oh, I should have said this or not said that or not used this word or like, should I have capitalized or not capitalized this word? And 
and that and it's that kind of fear that I think holds people back from saying and doing things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It also seems to be an indication that at least in this culture that white supremacist practices are working because of that binary. It's good, bad, either or. Mm-hmm. And I think as you talk, you know, so much of it is how a person can reintegrate and the practices that a person can engage in to learn. And I, and your book provides sort of those tools for that learning. And there's something too about preparing a community to learn too. How can a community reaccept somebody back into their community with this fundamental understanding that we do have the capacity to change? And I think right now you know, we're in this moment of racial reckoning in our larger society. And when you wrote this book, you wrote it before the pandemic, um, before these current conditions around COVID, before the current conditions around uh, violence, particularly violence against black communities. And this is something that has always existed. And yet we're in a moment where people are watching more intently or you know, the responses are different now. And I wonder about if you were to revise or rewrite portions of this book, would you include anything different now? Hmm. My initial thought is no, because I don't think things were really any different a year ago. The only thing that's different now is there's been such a surge of protests. So my first thought is like, I don't think I would have written anything different. I think if anything, people are going to be more primed and open to what's in this book and it will be easier to, to hear and to digest because of what's been happening the last month or two in terms of just the awareness and the I feel like the conversation has really shifted in the last couple of months the kind of conversation the amount of conversation the people involved in the conversation it just feels like it's shifted finally and and the urgency that people have is is higher than I ever remember it being mm. do you <laughs> Do you think it'll stick now differently than it has before? I know there's lots of fear, you know, there's lots of, yeah, fear about this not sticking. And I just think that change has a rhythm and a cycle. I don't know what it means to stick or to not stick. Like people are not going to stay in the streets for week after week and month after month. It's just, it, I don't think that's going to happen. But will there be other kinds of changes happening? I don't know. Mm-hmm. I think that people are feeling, you know, I think at the core, it's like people are, all kinds of people are feeling like we just can't go on this way. And in some ways, there's almost like there's more accountability to say or do something. I don't know. I'm, I guess I'm feeling hopeful. Some days I feel really hopeful. And then other days I hear things on the news and I sort of, you know, get angry and sad and scared again. But, you know, like the three white men who hunted down and killed 
Ahmad Arbery shot him in the street, um, they were arrested and they were indicted. And who knows what will happen to them. But, but that was something. But I do recognize that I have this conflict sometimes. I was talking with Stacy, my husband, and I was saying, you know, like these, these three guys, they, they're in Georgia. These, these three guys who, these men who murdered Ahmaud Arbery, they're in Georgia. And what if they get the death penalty? That's going to pose a moral challenge for me because I pose the death penalty. I don't know. But, but you know, the more I thought about it, I realized, no, I want them to suffer for years. I want them to feel fear. And so I actually really want them to go to prison. But then, you know, I was saying to Stacey, like, couldn't we just have one, you know, one execution of these people? Just one. Then I'll go back to opposing the death penalty. But yeah, when we think about how many people unwittingly have died at the hands of police officers and how many black men have died at the hands of white violence. I think, yeah, I mean, it raises interesting questions around what for us feels like justice Mm -hmm. and what justice ultimately means for us. Yeah. I know we're, we're getting close to the end of our time. I have a question about white educators. Mm -hmm. Um, so eight over, was it? Over 80% of teachers identify as white, I think, and the preponderance of that 80% are white females. And, you know, I also know in a moment in in time that the conversations around race are changing and a lot of white people who weren't before and districts and leaders who weren't having these conversations before are now confronted with the urgency of this work in ways that they hadn't before. And... I guess what I wonder about is a lot of white people are asking like, where do I begin? You know, Mm. where do I, where do I even start? And I can imagine that coaching for equity is going to be a starting point for a lot of people. Mm. So what I wonder is for white identified people who are reading this book, what do you want them to think about, to, to know if this is the first book that they're reading around creating Mm -hmm. equitable conditions in their schools, what's important for them to know or do? That's a good question. So my husband, Stacy read this whole book at least once. There were portions that he read again and he was reading the chapters about Stephanie, who was a young white woman I coached, and he was reading these chapters, and he's really the most compassionate, wise person I know. And he was challenging me on some of what I was writing. And then one day he just said, look, do you believe that white women can teach black boys? And I said, yes, absolutely. Yes. And he said, okay, well, these parts, it doesn't sound like it. 
And, and that's why he reads everything I write. And I said, you're right. And this is where I realized my growth and my learning comes up. I think that's the first thing. Yes. White people can teach black and brown children. It is possible. They can teach them. They can teach them really well. And white people have a lot of learning to do. And I don't want to just lump every person of color into one group and say they are just, you know, automatically positioned in a way to be better. It's not true. I have seen lots of harm done to black and brown children by people of color who perhaps hadn't processed some of their own pain or by you know, somebody who identifies as a person of color and has light skin privilege and comes from a really financially resourced home and experience. And so I don't want to just automatically, you know, I don't want to lump people. I think that there are even within the broad grouping of white teachers or white women, there's plenty of white women who have had experiences of marginalization and can access that as a way to be able to more deeply connect with and perhaps understand some of the experiences of students of color. So yes, we can unlearn this stuff. And actually, by doing so, we will all feel better, healthier, more whole, more more connected to each other. I was talking to somebody just recently um, about, you know, this white woman teacher who wants to come and work in a city because she wants diversity and, you know, she wants to be around diverse people. And I was feeling like, yeah, me too. There's nothing wrong with that. Now we can hear that and it can feel a little bit cringy and maybe problematic, but that's a beautiful desire. There's just more learning to do. Yes. There's, yes, there's so much learning to do. And I think, you know, what you shared about accessing those parts of us, you know, if we, if our ultimate goal is to feel loved, valued, cared for, you know, that's a fundamental human need that's at the core of the work we do. It's at the core of being a human being. And so, you know, how might we access the parts in us that, that have that need for love and to recognize like all of our students possess that need and it's about us creating those conditions. I want to ask you one more question and it's a question that you, you like to ask people you coach and it's a question I sometimes like to ask you, which is, mm. what is the question um, you wish I would ask you? Hmm. Oh, let's see. I don't know what the question is, but I know what the answer is. Okay. <laughs> I don't know what the question is. It's kind of something about what happens next. It's almost like, what's my relationship with this book now? And it's interesting when I think about this book I keep using this metaphor with my books and I feel kind of embarrassed because I feel like everybody uses it and it's a cheap cliche, but it does feel like another child. And I feel kind of protective about this child. And I also feel very tender 
towards it. Like I feel like I tried my very best with this book and I really don't, I don't know how it'll be received. I don't know what's going to happen to it. I don't know how I'm going to feel about it in five or 10 years. I don't know what it's going to bring up for people, but I feel like I, I put everything I could into it and I want to send it out wishing it the very best in its life. I don't know what that means. It's a weird feeling. I have these moments where I feel like it is mine. And then these other moments where, again, almost like having a child where I feel like, I don't know, I just carried it. It just lived in me for nine months. This book actually did. And then, you know, I gave birth to it. Now it's out. It's going to do what it's going to do in the world. And that's, I can't really do anything else about it. Where my mind went is what this book will do is change people. I I really do believe that people will find so many points of connection and opportunities for deep self-examination and have tools to transform schools. I know it will because so much of what I've used, I mean, everything in here comes from real experience. It's not like something I'm making up and telling people to do. And I think the one, maybe the one last thing that I want to raise in here, since we're talking about books, in the last period of time, the last month or so, in response to the murder of George Floyd and all the conversation that's happening about race, I've seen some conversations where people are questioning what impact can be had by reading a book. You know, books don't change things, that just reading books, doesn't make people not racist, which I agree. And reading books changes people. Mm -hmm. And that's why when an authoritarian regime comes in, the first thing they do is ban books and burn books. Books change people. And every time I see books being bashed, I feel really defensive of books. And this is not just because I write books and I read books and I love books. I've been changed by books. I've been fundamentally reorganized by books and and I think books and other forms of art can crack us open. Like I just, this is tangential, but I just watched Disclosure, the Netflix show with or created by Laverne Cox, I think, and someone else. And that that show i really feel changed by that in terms of how i understand the experience of trans people it just kind of blew my mind and and then i think back to other books i've read or films or or people i've known where learning about their experience changes me But I think coaching for equity, I hope will kind of crack open the, the empathy for people and the, the sort of emotional experience. But it will also, it is very practical and actionable. And for me, at least, there's been so many times as an educator where I've thought, I just don't know how to respond. I don't know the words to say, or I don't know the steps to say them in or something. And that is what's also in this book. Mm Yeah, and I think it, 
balances the practicality with the lived experiences that you've shared. And I think in closing, you know, for me, I mean, your books have changed me before, you know, when I was, when I was a new coach, right. Reading somebody's writing about educational equity and coaching was a first and it shifted me fundamentally in my practices an art of coaching teams gave me tools for leadership and onward gave me tools for resilience during really challenging times and not so challenging times. And now coaching for equity for me. And I imagine all your readers is going to give them really fundamental tools to shift their beliefs and ways of being and behaviors in schools for our students. So I, it's like, I'm thanking you for, <laughs> for being on this podcast, but it's your podcast. It is an honor to interview you. So I really appreciate it. Hmm. Well, thank you for interviewing me and for being on my podcast. And yes, I feel like we could talk about reading and books and being changed by, by books and how we've learned and grown for so long. So we'll continue this at some point talking about other books. Of course. Thanks, Lori. Thanks, Elena. Much appreciated. All right, everybody. And just a reminder, you can pre-order Coaching for Equity right now, today. It actually makes a big difference when a book gets a ton of pre-orders. Um, it means that my book will be seen by more people and they'll print more copies of it and, you know, blah, blah, blah. It's kind of a game that I need to play sometimes. So do consider pre-ordering it. Um, also check out my website. I've got some events coming up that you can join me for the official uh, book launch party. And again, I'm also starting that course to help you become a published author if you're interested check out my website, brightmorningteam.com. All right. The Bright Morning Podcast is produced by Stacy Goodman and Leslie Bickford. And the sound engineering is also done by Stacy Goodman. If you are enjoying the podcast, please head over to Apple Podcasts and give us a five-star rating. We got to get these ratings and play that game too. Take care, everyone. 